Good afternoon. I just want to add my welcome to this online service from Foundation Church. My name's Owen, and I have the privilege of leading the team here at Foundation. Whether you're here for the first time or whether you're a Foundation regular, I'm so glad that you've joined us this afternoon. We're going to be continuing our series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, a series which we've entitled The Search for Meaning. Now, this book follows in his own words, the journey of King Solomon, uh, the rich, wise, and powerful king of Israel in his search for meaning. You know, is it in wealth? Is it in wine or women, wisdom, or somewhere else? And you can catch up with the series if you've missed any so far on our website. Uh, But we are going to be reading today from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're going to get into it in just a moment. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to, to go ahead and get it and turn to Ecclesiastes 4. Uh, if not, don't worry too much. The words will come up on the screen for you to read along. How we're going to do this today is we'll read uh, just a bit and then we'll unpack that. Then we'll read a bit more, unpack that, so on and so forth. Now, I just need to give you a heads up before we read. Uh, It's going to take a minute for Solomon to get to any good news in the verses that we read today. In fact, actually, he first spends a decent chunk of time observing some really big problems with life and with the world. And it's really not an easy ride, but I just want to encourage you up front, hang in there, stick with him. The good news does come, and we will get there. So... Uh, Without any more kind of introduction, we're going to go ahead and read together from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. Straight away. It's not the brightest start, is it, right? Straight away, Solomon says, the world is often not a nice place to be. You don't have to look far to see oppression, do you? You don't have to look far to see injustice in this world. And King Solomon surveyed the world. He looked around him and he saw that it was not a great place. It was a broken place, a place full of pain, a place where people mistreated one another, where people abused one another and oppressed one another. You turn on the news and it's full of it, isn't it? Something we're so familiar with seeing, these heartbreaking stories of people in power abusing that position of power over others. Whether it's high-profile cases and historic accounts of mistreatment and exploitation, whether it's human trafficking or abuse cases in the workplace or some stuff we've seen recently in the news. Obviously, we're looking a lot lately at Black Lives Matter and issues of racial justice or not so long ago, Me Too, and uh, where men have abused a position of power and authority over women. You don't have to look far, and sadly, the list goes on. Unless you've walked through this life with your eyes and ears firmly closed, 
then you will have heard and seen heartbreaking stories of people who have abused their position of power over others. You'll know people who have experienced it. Perhaps you yourself have experienced it. In all kinds of ways, we see it. All of them wrong. And often cases we hear about in the news, perhaps where someone who could do something about it, someone who could intervene and yet fails to do so, leaving the oppressed feeling utterly without a voice, without anyone who will listen or anyone who will comfort them. And that's what Solomon observes here. He writes, doesn't he? That he sees the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. How heartbreaking. But sadly, how often the case. Perhaps, on the other hand, you actually have been in a position of power or authority. Maybe you've used that position to oppress or marginalize or somehow or other defraud those under your power. Maybe you've used your power for your own advantage, for your own gain, for your own kind of fulfillment and pleasure rather than using it to protect and serve those in your care. Solomon observes this. And having observed it and Acknowledging the heartbreak of it, he says this, we read on from verse 2, he says, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Solomon looks at this suffering and he says, you know, it's so unbearably bad that death almost seems like a release from it. That actually you would no longer have to endure the pain and suffering of observing and feeling powerless ultimately to do anything about it. And then he goes on, and what's better perhaps is, is for those who aren't born yet, because actually they haven't yet seen this suffering. They're innocent. They don't know the heartache of seeing evil people oppressing those around them. <laughs> and then he goes on. It's still not a particularly rosy picture. He says, And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. People oppress and abuse others. And now he says, do you know, even what people do in the workplace, their accomplishments, their achievements spring actually from their envy of one another. He's like, you know what, if we pull back from it, even if we take a step back from those who are knowingly and actively oppressing others in ways that make us weep and question everything and for Solomon's say, maybe it would be better if we were to never live, he says, actually, at its root, Pretty much every achievement comes out of envy and selfishness. Now, you might read that and think, oh, come on, it's a bit extreme. But I want to ask you to just consider it honestly. 
for a moment because I think here Solomon observes very acutely something that so often drives us, <laughs> drives our purchasing decisions, drives the way we live our lives. Actually, we desire to be better than them. We want to be richer than our neighbor or better looking than our neighbor or more accomplished than our classmates. We want people to look at us and to compare us favorably to other people and to themselves. It's this impulse that just seems to drive us. So much of what we do is is pressed by this desire to keep up with the Joneses. And it keeps us on the treadmill. Working, working, working to accumulate wealth, to accumulate more, to to achieve more. Solomon's already addressed this, which if you've been with us the last few weeks, you will have uh, heard or read and read in these verses. He's already spent some time at length uh, in the book observing this way of living and the fact that it doesn't satisfy us. But now, actually, he helps us to see part of what drives this type of behavior. Rather than just observing the behavior itself, he wants us to see part of what drives it. And it's this bad motivation, this envy, jealousy, rivalry. We see something that they want. And by contrast, we feel that what we have is all of a sudden lacking or inadequate. And so out of envy for what they have, we seek it out for ourselves. Or perhaps in the case of the oppressor and oppressed, we seek to try and take it from them for ourselves. This envy, jealousy and rivalry just cause division between human relationships. It's it's destructive in relationships. I guess I want to ask you, even when you bring it down to the level of relationships. Have you ever found yourself envying someone to the point that actually you begin to resent them? You know, maybe it's that they're better looking than you, or they're wealthier than you, or they're more popular than you, and you resent them for it. Like it just burns you up inside to see them succeeding, to see them getting the accolades, maybe to see them getting the promotion that you feel you should have, to see them earning the money that you feel you deserve for the work that you do. And it just begins to eat away at you inside. And so either you use words to try and tear them down in front of others, to belittle them, to to try and pull them down a peg or two so that you begin to compare more favorably in the eyes of others. Or you work and work and work to try and be more or have more than them. Maybe you've experienced that. No? Maybe not? No, I mean, like, me either. I've just heard that that's a thing sometimes. Uh, But, uh, you know, I'm sure... None of us can relate. I I know I can't, so that's okay. And you know, Solomon goes on now and says, actually, there's, there's a couple of ways that people respond to this feeling. And the first is that they say there's just no point. Like, why even try to compete? Like, stuff it. Give up. And they have this why bother attitude. And Solomon portrays this person in verse 5 as 
foolish. He's like, don't do that. He says this. He says, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. It's like they just go, do you know what? I can't measure up. I can't compare. I quit. I can't be bothered. Like I just give up. As you fold your hands, <laughs> you refuse to work, refuse to apply yourself in the way that you could or should. He says, basically, you're lazy. And that isn't the answer. It leads to ruin. It says that they fold their hands and ruin themselves. It's not a good path to take. What about the other? Well, the other common response we read from verse 8 is to go all out in competition. And he says this, he says, there was a man all alone. So he, he pictures someone who's not like the fool, they're different, but he pictures them. He says, there was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. But for whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. The picture Solomon paints for us here is of the workaholic, the person who is just on this quest for more, more, more. He says their, their eyes are not content with their wealth. However much they amass, there's always more. So consumed with accomplishment, so consumed with a desire for more, that actually he's never satisfied driven by this desire to be the best and have the most. He believes that that's where he'll find fulfillment. But eventually, he'll come to the conclusion that's not the answer. Hmm. This portrait of a workaholic is lonely. He has no family around. As Solomon portrays him, there is no end to his work, yet there is no one to share his wealth with. You know, there are plenty of us who live just like this. And even when we do have family around us, <laughs> we can be so invested in work, so consumed in the accumulation of more that actually we neglect those around us. We can even convince ourselves sometimes that we're doing it for our family. It's for their good, so they can have this or that or the other, so we can go on that holiday, so we can live that lifestyle. And instead of actually living and enjoying life and sharing it in building intimacy with our loved ones, well, instead, we work, work, work to the detriment of our relationships. We can easily believe that we're working for something good. It needn't be for financial gain, actually. It may be something else. But as you give yourself, as you give your time, as you give your devotion to work, to projects, then actually you can so easily end up shortchanging those closest to you, sidelining your family. You know, I've been personally challenged of this this week as I've prepared. This fits my personality. I can be driven. I want to do the best. I'm a real perfectionist. <laughs> like, I, I want to be the best. That's my natural bent as a person. 
And because I have the privilege of working for church, actually, well, there's always more that could be done. And actually, I can find myself reasoning that this is really important work. I mean, people's lives are at stake. People's eternity is at stake. People's relationships with God are materially impacted by the work I do. Or so <laughs> I like to tell myself. And I can easily find myself justifying overworking. Just like the man Solomon pictures here. And actually it's pride that drives it. It's a lack of trust in God that drives it. And it's a wrong priority of my time. For you, it might be the promise or hope of financial freedom. Like, if I could just do that, if I take that extra shift, if I put in those hours, if I just could get to that point in my career, if I could just make the next pay grade, then that would make all the difference. If I could just, and we keep going. If I could just get through this project then. But the truth is, the quieter day doesn't come. The freedom that we believe we will get doesn't arrive and our relationships suffer. See, Solomon wants us to see that the fool who folds his hands and does nothing and says, stuff it, is not the way to go. But neither is the drivenness of perpetually striving for more, more, more. And actually, he says this, we read in verse 6. It says, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. In other words, he wants us to see that it's better to have actually less, to just have one handful instead of two. It's better to have less money, less stuff. And along with that, no peace and no rest than to have more two handfuls, but be constantly toiling, constantly striving for more. Actually, this picture is a really beautiful one because with one hand, then you have capacity to do something with the other, to share what you have, to help to actually invest in relationships with those around you, yet with two handfuls of stuff and endless toil, you have no capacity for those around you. Yeah. Solomon wants us to see that it's right for us to work. <laughs> we shouldn't be lazy and fold our hands and, and so destroy ourselves in that. He wants us to see it's right and good to work, but not to be consumed by it. It's okay to have things. He doesn't say it's better to have no, nothing in your hands. It's better to have one handful and peace than two handfuls and toil. Says we should work and work hard, but don't find your identity there. Don't place your hope there. It's better to have less and time to share it with those around you than to just keep striving for more. You know, I've never, ever met an adult who has come to me as a church pastor or as a friend to bemoan the fact that their father picked them up from school or came to watch their games in a beat-up old car. No one's ever said that to me. <laughs> but I know plenty of people who grew up with 
multiple really nice cars in their house, lived in an incredible property, went on multiple foreign holidays a year, had every material possession they could possibly want, but yet have grown up thoroughly resenting the fact that their dad was never present, that they had all the material things they wanted, but their dad was just never there. He didn't pick them up at school, let alone what car he did it in. He didn't come to their games because he was always too busy. Solomon says it's better to have one handful than two and much toil. See What Solomon's been doing to this point in this chapter, what he's been building for us, he's, he's highlighted for us the lack of comfort for the oppressed and the injustices that we see around us. He, he points out the inevitable brokenness and loneliness that comes from both laziness and an envy-fueled frenzy of work, 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 work. Solomon has been building up through this passage to his main point, which we get to now, and that is this. He says, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, well, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Solomon says two are better than one. He's talking about people, not handfuls of stuff, just to be clear. What he wants to say here is we don't do well on our own. If someone falls down on their own, they're in trouble. Who's going to help them up? If you're attacked on your own, you are far more likely to be overpowered than if you are accompanied by a friend. And when we work together, we get more done. It's just true. And in the depths of winter, well, two stay warmer than one. These are solid, real-life, physical illustrations. that They hold true. And Solomon uses them to help make a point. But they're pictures that speak of a larger truth. Now, they're often quoted at weddings, maybe... That's the only place you've heard those words before, <laughs> is when you've attended a wedding and someone's quoted that. Well, isn't this a beautiful picture of marriage? Two are better than one. A cord of three strands is... And they... <laughs> you know, that is one context in which this is worked out. And, and, and they are legitimately quoted at weddings. But it's not actually necessarily really what Solomon had in mind here. It would be a really odd shift in his reasoning and in the way he's structured this work to make that just about married couples. No, Solomon has a much broader view than that. He just wants to say we're not good on our own. We were created for community, community with God and with one another. And this is a truth that is shot right through Scripture, from beginning to end. And when we look, we find, firstly, that God gives himself and that he also gives us one another, community. 
God gives himself, and that is the most precious of gifts imaginable. The most amazing thing in creation, at the beginning in Genesis, as we read the account of God's creation of the heavens and the earth as he created humanity and placed them in the garden, the most stunning moment within all of it was when we read that God walked in the garden with man and woman, with mankind, that he presenced himself with them, that he shared closeness, relationship with them. But as people turned their backs on him, as humanity rejected God and his ways, then the relationship was severed. But Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to restore that relationship, to make it possible for us to experience forgiveness and to be brought back into relationship with God. And he's promised to those who trust him, this is just stunning, he promises to those who trust him that he will never leave them or forsake them which means whatever you face if your hope is in Jesus then you don't face it alone he's with you you see at least part of the answer for the oppressed that Solomon addressed right at the outset of the chapter these oppressed who have no one to comfort them who have no one to to advocate for them to speak up on their behalf is that actually even when everyone else feels or seems powerless to help, when there is no one to comfort you, he will be with you and he will comfort you. And what's more, he promises ultimately that there will be justice and that your oppressors will be judged justly for what they've done. It's an amazing hope. But it's actually not just the oppressed for whom this is the answer. We're going to read some verses from the New Testament, from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And as we do, I hope you'll see that actually the fact that God himself wants to be with his people is much of the answer For the rest of the things that Solomon has observed in this chapter, we read this in Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6. He says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Does that sound familiar? I mean, it's like one handful with peace than two handfuls with striving, yeah? It's like rather than being on this perpetual quest for more, 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 the love of money, this desire for more stuff, says, keep yourselves free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? (laughs) The oppressed can say, he's with me and the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. And right here too, the writer of Hebrews wants us to see that the words, I will never leave you nor forsake you, is also the answer 
not just for fear, but for envy and discontentment. In other words, when we realize that in Christ Jesus, in God with us, we have everything and jealousy and rivalry that cause division and drive us in that competitive cycle for more and more and more. And actually it leads us to a place of contentment and peace rather than hunger and striving. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, he who has God and everything has no more than he who has only God. In other words, he's saying in him we have everything we need. And it doesn't matter whether, you've, whether you know God and you also have many material blessings or whether you have God and God alone, he is enough. So having a relationship with God is a huge part of the answer to the problems that Solomon has observed in the world and the pain that we so readily identify with. But we also see in the Bible that God created us for relationships with one another. (laughs) Within humanity, we read in Genesis that after looking over his creation, God declared his creation to be good. He looked at it all after he made it and he said, this is good. But then he saw man before he created woman alone. And having declared everything else to be good, he said, actually, it is not good for man to be alone. And so he created woman from man for relationship with him, for intimacy, for companionship, for community. And looking at the two together, he instructed them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth. And then he said of mankind, men and women together, created in his image for his glory, having said everything else was good, he looked upon them and said, this is very good. Mother Teresa, who spent her life working with the poor in Calcutta, said that the worst disease she encountered in all her years was not leprosy, AIDS or cancer, but loneliness. It's not good for man to be alone. And a big part of God's answer to this loneliness actually is the local church community. We talked a few weeks ago in our James series about how we need one another. We we focused then on the fact that actually we all have blind spots. Like, (laughs) I'm going to do stuff that will offend and upset and hurt people, sometimes intentionally. For that, I need to repent and apologize. But sometimes I'll do it and I'm not even aware of it. It's a blind spot. And I actually need someone to lovingly point that out and help me in that. We need one another to lovingly point those things out and to help us grow more like Jesus. But we need each other for more than that. And we're called to more than that as a church community. Actually, as we read through the Testament, New Testament, we read of the church that we are called to all of these things. We're called to be those who love 
one another. We're called to be those who pray for one another, who care for one another, who serve one another, who encourage one another, who exhort one another, who comfort one another with the comfort that we have received from Christ Jesus, who bear one another's burdens, who are devoted to one another, and a whole lot more. Or in Solomon's words, we're to be those who pick each other up when one falls down and who will stand together so that you might not be overpowered when the enemy comes to tempt you. We need one another in all these ways. I need you and you need me. We need each other. And in this, there is something particularly, particularly special about the church. See, this beautiful and diverse community of people of different ages and backgrounds and interests, different tastes and preferences, who are united by our shared hope in Jesus Christ. This is truly something unique. The church, we read in 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Peter 2, is God's building project. Stunning. It says we're like living stones, each one of us, different shapes and sizes, being built together with Jesus as the cornerstone on which everything else comes together. We read in Ephesians 1 and 4 and Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and elsewhere that the church is a body where every part is needed. Maybe I'm a mouth and you're a hand and Dave's a foot. I mean, I don't know, but we're a body and we need one another. And Jesus is the head. It's what we read. This is amazing. We read in Ephesians 2 that the church is a family, members of the household of God, where Jesus himself calls us brothers and sisters. You know, not one of these is an individualistic picture. I can't be a body on my own. I, I can't be multiple living stones built together. I, I, I can't be a family on my own. Each one of these pictures with Christ at the centre of it all, as the foundation, the cornerstone, the head, our brother who brings us into relationship with the Father, each one of these is about more than any one of us. You see, there's something that we can express together that we just can't on our own. And that's why I'm so desperate for us to hold together in this season where we're, we're pushed apart by coronavirus and social distancing measures and all these other things. That's why I'm so desperate for us to hold together at this time as a community, it's why I'm keen for us to keep finding ways of staying in touch with one another as a community. And it's why we're keen to get back together in person as soon as we're practically able to do so. Because our togetherness is not incidental, it's important, it's vital, it's crucial. It's why we encourage everyone to be part of a life group where you can really get to know others and grow together. And they can really get to know you. It's why we're encouraging people at the moment to meet two households at a time to 
watch and engage with these services or at other times to eat together and pray together. It's why we're encouraging people to get out together in small groups of six to go for a walk and talk and pray with one another. You know, I've been so grateful for the technology that we've got and the, the hard work of a volunteer team that's allowed us to run these online services and try and kind of retain some kind of togetherness at this time in this way. But if this, on a Sunday, online service is what we do, then guys, this falls so far short of church. We're called to be a church 24-7, a body a family, this living, breathing, growing community of people with Christ our head. Church is more than a Sunday gathering, but it's certainly not less than a Sunday gathering either. You know, when you just watch at home on your own, the challenge and the problem is that you're not seen and you're not known. You can just Dial in, watch it, flick off. And no one benefits from you being there. And no one knows you. And if we're not careful, it could reduce our Sunday gatherings to a, a one-way communication, just a consumer experience that we take in in our lounges and we move on into the week. But guys, we were made for more than that. The church is made for more than that. We were made for community. Online services might seem very appealing at first. You know, you can watch it when you like. You can turn the volume up or down to suit your preference. You can watch it from the comfort of your sofa. In fact, you can pick and choose a bit if you like. I mean, you could do the kids' work from another church because maybe theirs is slightly better than ours. Um, maybe you could do the worship from another because their band's awesome. Uh, and Or maybe you could just do the preaching from another um, you can tailor so much of it to how you just want it to be. And if you don't like what I say, or you just get bored, then you don't even have the awkwardness of standing up and walking out of a room. You just turn it off. But no one knows you. And using Solomon's language, that means actually there's no one to keep you warm. There's no one who you can call on when it goes wrong and you need picking up. It might seem all right now, but when the storm comes, when you fall down and you need someone to help you up, we need one another and we need to know one another and we need to build relationships with one another. And our togetherness on Sundays is more than just a convenient cultural quirk. You know, churches around the world meet in all kinds of places in all kinds of ways in cathedrals and caves, in homes, under trees, in, in secret because it's illegal for them to gather, or out in the public square, in small groups and in huge crowds. But what remains consistent and what's significant is that they do gather. They prioritise being together, even when it's grossly inconvenient to do so, and even when in some parts of the world they risk imprisonment or worse for doing so. Why? Like, why do that? <laughs> why is it so important? Why would people go through that? Well, because the Bible tells us to. There is an assumption as we read the New Testament that the church will meet 
together, with instructions for what to do when they meet together. We read in Hebrews 10 that we're not to give up meeting together. And in this season, online church has been a necessary and helpful way of doing so. But with all my heart, I can't wait for the day that we're able to actually see one another face to face. The look in one another's eyes and when I ask how you're doing, I know how you're doing. (laughs) So much more readily than over text or on a phone call. We do it because we're a body and that unity needs to be expressed. Yet even at a distance in our homes right now, we are a body. And I praise God for that, that we're united even in our kind of physical distance and being pushed apart. But like any body, actually, we shouldn't want to stay dislocated. (laughs) We should want to be back together. It's more comfortable. It's more healthy (laughs) to be together because we benefit from the challenge and encouragement of one another's gifts and prayers and conversation in a way that we just can't right now. And each member of the body brings something unique when we gather. And that feels lacking right now. I miss your contributions when we gather. And our gathering, in spite of our differences, also demonstrates our unity In Jesus, you know, it would be more comfortable and easier not to gather. (laughs) But we do so, even when we might not naturally feel inclined to do it because of our unity in Jesus. And our gathering, when we actually come together, our gathering and our greeting one another actually changes lives. Now, you might think that's a really odd thing to say. You might think that sounds a bit much, like how can just... Greeting someone change someone's life. But you know what? Throughout the New Testament, we find personal greetings from writers of letters to churches, and as well as instructions for Christians to greet one another, there are greetings from them to the churches. So they greet and they instruct others to greet one another. And that's not incidental because these greetings communicate something of the power of the gospel to bring together diverse people and build us together into a beautiful new community, God's building project. David Gunderson wrote this recently in a blog for Crossway, and I I was so struck by these words, I loved it. He says this, Happy greetings when we gather. Remind us of the gospel unity we enjoy in Christ. Awkward greetings declare that the healthy church shows no partiality. (laughs) Avoided greetings remind us to resolve our conflicts and reconcile our hearts to one another, to forgive and ask for forgiveness. See, every greeting reflects God's love, reunites Christ's body, enables hospitality, cultivates selflessness, opens doors for ministry and bears witness to the God who has welcomed us through Christ Jesus, even if these greetings are masked, touchless and distanced. They're still life-shaping micro-events in every church. You know, our drive-in service a few weeks back. You know what the best moments were for me? And I know, speaking to others too. It wasn't the preaching or the worship. It wasn't that we had a 
really great tech set up. No, no. I mean, it was good to be united in those things. It was good to be together and worship. It was good to gather around the preaching of the word. But what was most special for me was the greetings. It was seeing people see one another and connect again after weeks apart. It was powerful. It was life-changing. And I'm so, so looking forward to next week as we picnic for those greetings to happen again. We need each other. We need each other. And so I want to encourage you as we conclude to first recognize that trying to go it alone is a painful road to nowhere. You need God and we need each other. And maybe for the first time today, you might actually want to join me in praying in just a moment and saying that you want a relationship with God. You want to know him as the one who will never leave you or forsake you, whatever happens. And finally, I want to encourage you to press into community. Join a life group if you're not already part of one. You can email us about that. Get together with others this week and in the coming weeks to eat and pray and share life together as much as we're able with social distancing. And join me in eagerly looking forward to the day when we're able to gather again here for the good of each other and the glory of God.